0: Welcome to London Calling, the regular podcast series from Music Heritage UK. This time, we're taking a peek into the archives at the Royal Albert Hall in London, one of the world's most famous, prestigious, and significant music venues. We met with Suzanne Keat, archivist at the Hall to take a deeper look at its popular music history, relive some of its most historical pop performances and discover some of the famous names who were banned from gracing the stage. Here's Suzanne giving us a potted history of the Hall which opened its doors to the public for the first time in 1871.
1: The hall was is really um, part of Prince Albert's legacy. So Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, was instrumental in setting up the great exhibition of 1851, which was um, an enormous, huge exhibition in um, a massive conservatory just across the road from us in Hyde Park, and that was in 1851. Now, that made a massive success. It showed um, the best of the world's inventions um, from from every country really in the world, and people flocked to it, um, and it made a huge amount of money. And one of the things that came out of that exhibition was the fact that Albert wanted to develop this area for, the, um, for arts and sciences. So there was an organization set up at the time, the 1851 Commissioners, so the people who looked after that, that exhibition, then bought this huge chunk of land, so everything here from the Albert Hall right down to where the Natural History Museum is was actually um, bought by the 1851 commissioners. They still control that land, they still exist as a body, and they're still our landlords, and they're um, actually in the Imperial College just across the way. Um, But it was Albert's wish to see a hall built to show off the latest inventions in arts and sciences. And it was very much um, something he wanted to get done, but unfortunately, Albert died in 1861, but Queen Victoria and several of his friends, like Henry Cole, um, wanted to see the Albert Hall built, Um, so they raised the money and the hall was eventually opened ten years after his death. Um, It was going to be called the Royal Hall of Arts and Sciences, but it was changed to the Royal Albert Hall of Arts and Sciences by Queen Victoria. And there it was in 1871, the biggest concert hall in London and I think the biggest concert hall in Europe. From about 1900 onwards, it really was the place to come because it was the biggest concert hall. If you wanted to draw large crowds, if you had a very famous artist, if you had a famous singer, if you were a political party then this was the place that you came to because it was the biggest place as I said it was set up for the arts and scientists but we've always sort of very much been mainly the arts in the early days there was lots of exhibitions and we do have scientific events here even now like just recently we had Tim Peake the astronaut speaking here on the stage but um, it primarily became a music venue very much a place ran by the elites but um, they always wanted to attract in um, everybody and so they used to put on penny concerts so to try and attract people in from all classes and very much um, putting on popular concerts as well so that they weren't ashamed to put on you know sort of um, the popular bits of music that always brought the crowd in like Handel's Messiah which was you know, always um, huge here from the word go, and still is even now today.
0: In the 1950s and 60s, the Albert Hall started to book the new kinds of performers which were catering for the growing youth audience. The hall had realised there was a lot of money to be made from putting on shows for teenagers.
1: When the first sort of pop, sort of type pop bands came along, it was quite gentle to start with, it was a sort of sort of a few skiffle bands there was the jazz bands that started to come in towards the end of the 50s all very civilized all very calm um the Albert Hall welcomed all of those sorts of things until I'd say about 63 when things started getting a little bit more riotous and that was when really you've got bands like the beatles coming along whose fans could not sit still and would not sit still on the seats and this was a new phenomenon really for the albert hall because they were used to having really well behaved fans who always sat down and did what they were told and then for the first time ever they've got fans who were jumping up screaming and not only not staying in their seats but running down to the front of the the auditorium now we had um, a quite a strange setup here at the hall in that we had um, an, um, an honorary corps of stewards. So these were a, a, a band of um, stewards who had been set up when the hall opened in 1871. They did it voluntarily, and in return they got free tickets. Now they were, let's just say, um, older older men of a certain type. I think that most of them were um, ex-military, ex-forces. They were to become a steward you had to be invited. So obviously you would always invite your own kind to become a steward. Um and they hated it. I mean the some of the comments, you know, that were made by the stewards when these pop audiences first started arriving at the hall and then of course, you know, they they couldn't understand why they couldn't keep them in their seats, you know, that they were taking no notice of them. Um they was, you know, as I said, screaming, jumping up and down, causing damage to the building. And it was definitely a clash of cultures a clash between the older white stewards if you like and the young pop fans who wanted to you know do what pop fans do and it, it, it was hard for the hall to to accept that and uh, that kind of uneasy relationship rumbled on until 1972 when we finally banned rock and pop from the albert hall for good i think it definitely was um yeah a sort of microcosm really of you know the, of Um, you know the clash between the old and the new the young and the old um, you know our stewards were old unfortunately obviously they got angrier and stroppier the the management of the hall got angrier and um, you know it was something that was never going to work the hall were kind of tried to be as tolerant as they could in some ways because they actually needed the revenue the hall wasn't that commercially successful in the 50s and the 60s and really they would have to have a really good reason to turn down a booking so even though they were uncomfortable with the um, with a lot of the rock and pop acts and the antics that were going on here um, when these things happened they still actually needed the money they needed the revenue coming in.
0: In the 1960s the Albert Hall hosted historic performances by Jimi Hendrix Cream, Bob Dylan, Deep Purple, and many, many others. They even can claim to have hosted both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones on the same bill in
2: 1963. Me and my baby party all day long I'm walking cause I couldn't get my car started Later from my job and I can't afford to check it I wish somebody come along and run it to it and wreck it Come on, since me and my baby party, Come on, I can't get started Come on, I can't afford to check it I wish somebody come along and run it to it and wreck it Everything is wrong since I been the you Every night I live with. thinking about you Every time I phone me Sounds like thunder, some stupid guy trying to reach another number. Come on, since I've been without you, come on. Always thinking about you, come on. Phone sounds like thunder, some stupid guy trying to reach another number.
1: it was the 15th of September 63 and the Beatles and the stones played on the same bill. The Beatles were obviously really well known by this time so they had thousands of screaming fans here the Rolling Stones not so much they'd only just started out and they still I think hadn't even started writing their own music at that time so it was very much a case of the Beatles headlining and the Rolling Stones opens. it was probably more of a treat for the Rolling Stones at that stage to be supporting the Beatles who they'd I think also become friends with yeah I've got a little quote here actually from Bill Wyman at the Rolling Stones so he said we opened the show and the Beatles watched us they told us years later that they were very nervous with the reception we got, but they had to leave. Um, the Rolling Stones actually had a, a gig, I think, later that night at the Craw Daddy in Richmond, so they had to, uh, to leave before they even saw the Beatles on stage. But the Beatles played, and the audience went crazy, the girls screamed, um, and, um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing event, really. Something that was um, organised um, by the BBC, they used to put on these pop proms at the hall and I think that was probably why the hall were very keen to take the booking because it was the BBC um they were behind them um there were lots of other bands on the bill who were you know quite so there was the Vernon's Girls the Brook Brothers all these people we haven't heard of anymore Shane Fenton and the Fentones, um the Lorne Gibson Trio um in yeah in the um, in the program they look very clean cut very nice obviously as I said the Rolling Stones were just starting out at that time and hadn't got the uh, reputation that they were to get later yeah I've got again another really good quote from the Daily Mirror so he said um, that it was the siege of the beetle crusher 6,000 screaming teenagers intent on crushing just four beetles never has the Royal Albert Hall seen scenes quite like it and uh, yeah I think that was probably true (music) We'll shake. Dylan um, came to the hall in 65 for two concerts that were completely sold down, went down really well. And then when he came back in um, 66, that was the controversial um, concert that he did where, yeah, he did the second half was the, where he um, basically did an electric set really with um, amplifiers and everything. And it did not go down well with a lot of fans
2: These are all protest songs, now, come on. This is is not British music, it's American music. Now, come on.
1: Here from the Times, which is really good. So he said, In the second half, he was accompanied by the thunderous quintet who made it virtually impossible to distinguish a single line of the lyrics. So, this is really, I think, what the heart of the problem was that, you know, that he was seen as being, you know, uh, this folk singer with an acoustic guitar that everyone could hear what he was saying. And all of a sudden, it it changed completely. And um, yeah, people weren't happy about it. Um, But as you say, there was the famous bootleg recording which said live at the Royal Albert Hall and it wasn't, it was actually Manchester Free Trade Hall. Uh, where somebody shouted Judas at him and I think that person has now been identified I think um, but um, then just at the end of last year so just in December um, they did actually release um, I think it's a double live album of um, the the actual concert from the Royal Albert Hall which is really great so that's good so it's out there now for all the fans to hear the, the proper one and then um, Bob Dylan came back um, to the Albert Hall in 2013 so there was a really long gap then between uh, 66 and when he returned in 2013 and then he came back again in 2015 so um, hopefully we're back on his uh, favored list of places to come. I think we are. <laughs> Cream, um very famously played their very last gig here in 1968 before they um, split up so um, they'd only been together, as everyone knows, they'd only been together for two years um, and then um they basically couldn't couldn't get on with each other could they um constant bickering i think in the bands. and i remember reading this quote from eric clapton saying that he, he the bickering between um jack bruce and ginger Baker was so bad that once he turned off his guitar and walked away and they didn't even notice because they were so busy trying to outplay each other that it, it, it didn't matter really so um yeah they came here for their famous um sort of a farewell gig um which was released on an album um i think a lot of I think Cream fans are a bit divided about whether it's an amazing album or not. I think some of the members of Cream didn't feel it was their best effort. I think Ginger Baker has said that they were really so angry and fed up with each other by that time that it wasn't wasn't the best they could do. were actually um, supported on that day by Rory Gallagher's band, Taste, uh, Deep Purple. And yes, so it was quite a was quite a starry night, really. But um, they then came back again um, in 2005 for their sort of famous reunion gig, um, which I think they were really glad to be back together. I um, don't think it lasted for that long the happiness between the members but um but yeah 2005 again was a a huge event here for us to not only to have had the farewell tour but also to have had you know to have their reunion um and and really special and then of course eric clapton has gone on to become the artist who's been here the most out of anybody else so yeah he does i mean eric clapton has been here over 200 times so um that he is our he is our headliner basically our most prolific headliner um and um, there are some classical artists who have been here more often or conducted like Malcolm Sargent conducted here over 1500 times but in terms of sort of rock and pop eric clapton really has the record and um you know he's been hugely successful here uh, we love him he loves us I think <laughs> the fact he keeps coming back In fact he's coming back in May this year um, but I've got a really nice uh, quote from his autobiography where he talks about the Albert Hall and he said I always liked this venue and had enjoyed going to see people play there it's comfortable it has a great atmosphere and the management has always made sure that it sounds good it's also one of the few places to play where you can see all of the audience and actually feel it in amongst them and when you're on that stage you've got them behind you have got them all around you in boxes with standing up in the gods and sometimes even in the stalls the people at the front are right at your feet so you really feel like you're in among the crowd and I think that's that's quite a nice comment because we get we hear that quite a lot from artists but just because of the shape of the Albert Hall that they do feel like they're sort of surrounded by the audience and it feels quite intimate um, even though it is you know five and a half thousand people yeah um, but uh, yeah I can have that feeling I think it's quite funny because the first time I think he came was in the yard birds and I didn't yeah I didn't even recognize him in the photograph so then of course yeah we've got every program of Eric playing here, uh, right up until uh, you know the last time he came two years ago and you know of course it, it changes he's changed so much um, but there's some great photos from the 80s as well, where like he was pe- he was here with Phil, um, Phil Collins, and they were in these great sort of 80s suits with enormous shoulder yeah. pads and things.
0: <laughs> Jimi Hendrix played the Hall three times in his career. His February 1969 concerts are widely regarded as some of the best live performances he ever had with the Experience. But he first played the Hall two years earlier, headlining a show which featured another band who would go on to become a household name.
1: He'd played on the same bill as The Move, uh, Pink Floyd, The Amen Corner, and um, The Nice. Um, so, I'm yes, yeah, and again, we've got the programme for that as well. So, uh, and then, of course, was famously the 269 gigs, so when um, both in February, only a few weeks apart. But, um, again, meant to be really amazing and, yeah, hugely popular apparently Jimi hendrix played with his teeth and then he got on the floor and then he started charging his amplifier with his you know um guitar like a spanish bullfighter and then somebody was that poor old Rody was standing behind it trying to hold up the amps i think we've got a photograph of that somewhere
2: a and a fairy tale That's all she ever thinks about Riding with the wind It's all right, it's all right, she says it's all right. Taking a thing you
1: one of those sort of, um, I suppose, amazing events, really. It was one of the first times that where sort of rock music and classical music had come together. And really, I suppose it was the invention of sort of symphonic rock, which is something, you know, that we still have at the Albert Hall now. It's still really popular over the years, the uh, symphonic rock concerts. Really, this was the, the start of it. And um, Deep Purple um, were obviously quite a, a sort of heavy rock band. who was their keyboardist was, um, you know, uh, I think had been classically trained. He certainly got a place at the Royal College of Music. I don't know, I don't think he actually took the place up, but um, he, he was um, had a background in classical music and loved classical music. And it was him that came up with the idea really of getting together with um, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra uh, conducted by Malcolm Arnold. Malcolm Arnold, he was a a, a classical uh, conductor, but also a little bit of a maverick himself. Um, I think he was willing to take a bit of a risk on this. Um, By all accounts, it wasn't that popular, not with all members of the, even Deep Purple themselves weren't very happy about it, because I think um, Richie Blackmore sort of said it really wasn't his cup of tea. I think he tolerated it, but it really, he didn't enjoy it. um, and members of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra didn't um, didn't really enjoy it. rehearsals um where i think they were just about sort of probably staring each other down and i think at malcolm arnold actually had to shout out the royal Philharmonic orchestra players to sort of you know just get on with it and do their jobs I mean it all came together on the night and went down really well with the audience you know it was a huge thing for the Albert Hall and a huge thing as I say in in rock music really to have that sort of coupling between the you know the classical and the heavy rock but it was John Lord really who who it was his it was his baby and um you know he was really proud of it his composition you know and as i say malcolm arnold was was an unusual conductor in that he was willing to have a go at this as well And, of course, they came back in um, in 1999. Yeah, so in 1999, um, Deep Purple and the London Sim- Symphony Orchestra came back to do a 30th anniversary concert in Aid of Charity um, uh, to recreate the, the gig itself. Now, unfortunately, the music had been lost, and I think it was only John Lord bumped into a, a fan somewhere in Europe who sort of said that he was he thought he could piece it back together to actually write the score again from scratch listening to it he was such a fan that he really wanted to do that and John Lord sort of sort of said well yeah that's great and um, I think together they worked on it and then managed to recreate the score Um, and then that's that's you know it happened again in 1999 so uh, yeah an amazing thing
0: Following a riotous headline show by Chuck Berry, supported by The Who, the management of the Albert Hall started to take a more proactive approach to banning acts. This culminated in 1972 on a full ban on rock and pop music at the venue.
1: The banning of certain bands started to creep in before the official ban. Um, so the official ban on rock and pop music came in February '72, um, but the actual banning of people that they didn't like or had damaged the hall in some way on previous visits started to creep in almost two years before that, really. So as, um, I mean, we've got lists of the damage done by certain acts um, to the hall, and so, some of them were quite bad, you know, there would be like, um, you know, 20 stall seats were ripped out or, you know, curtains were slashed, you know, um, you know. there was quite, yeah, quite, some quite serious damage done to the hall. On the 5th of July, 69, uh, was when, yeah, The Who and Chuck Berry were on the same bill. It was, again, the end of a week of concerts called um, the Pop Proms. So it all sounds very innocent, but probably, yeah, wasn't really that innocent. And on the day, it was the same day as the Rolling Stones were playing Over the Road in Hyde Park for that famous concert. But that also meant that there was a lot of people in the area who, um, a lot of, rockers and teddy boys who came to the albert hall and they caused um yeah quite a lot of damage so um yeah unfortunately chuck berry was from that moment onward banned from the Albert Hall, so that was in 69. I think they vowed there and then never to have um, Chuck Berry back in the hall. Um, so he was one of the first people to be banned. But yes, it was it was quite a rowdy concert. And The Who, of course, were, were sort of, even though, I don't know whether it was fans of The Who or fans of Chuck Berry, who were the worst, really, but out of that, Obviously, came a desire by the hall never to have the Who back in the building again. So, in um, 1972, before the 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 pop band had come in, um, they wanted to put on um, Tommy um, with a a live orchestra. There was going to be the London Symphony Orchestra. There was going to be Sandy Denny was going to sing with them. There was several other people involved. Richard Harris, the actor. Um,
2: Squires, Amanda, please contact stage door.
1: Sorry, hopefully that won't happen again. Yeah, Um, yeah. So the London Symphony Orchestra and various other people will book to put on a sort of an orchestral um, version of. of tommy the letter's quite funny because it doesn't say the who want to put on tommy it says the london symphony orchestra with these individuals and it so it lists them separately but i think marion hera by this time was obviously wise to it and underneath you can see that she's written in pencil the who <laughs> never again and um so she's obviously thinking you're not catching me out that way so they're not coming back in this building so even though it was going to be an orchestral version of um you know Tommy um, with The Who, they weren't allowed. Sure, right. Now Roger Daltrey is very much a part of the Albert Hall with the Teenage Concert Trust concerts that he organizes every year. So every um, sort of March, April time at the Albert Hall now, um, we have the TCT concerts, which, um, you know, absolutely fabulous, they always sell out, always really popular, um, and they raise a huge amount of money for the Teenage Cancer Trust. Um, so Roger Dolce is very much back on our Christmas card list again Mm -hmm. and uh, so when The Who played a couple of years ago we thought it'd be fun to sort of present them with the letters where they were banned but also to say yeah so we've written wrote them a little letter and it said dear Roger pete we would like to take this opportunity to apologize for banning your show here on the 9th of december 1972 we've had a long think and on reflection you're welcome back anytime thank you for 50 years of fantastic music and legendary performances kind regards all your friends at the royal albert hall and uh, roger dolce said um yeah he thought it was really funny he said i just find it extremely funny it might have taken 43 years but we beat the buggers in the end
2: you me.
1: February 1971, Frank Zappara um, um, had been here before, um, but he wanted to put on um, a version of his sort of like, um, I do what you call it, a sort of rock operatic thing called 200 Motels. Um, and with only two days before the show, uh, we actually decided to ban that as well because um, two members of the orchestra actually, I. Think, I think they were members of the Salvation Army. They actually made a complaint to to the hall that they thought the lyrics were obscene. And with um, just that to go on, really, the hall decided that they would... um, they would ban it, but with, as I say, only two days before the actual event. And Frank Zappa was absolutely furious about it. So um, a few years later, he actually started a, a court case against the Albert Hall and where he was suing them for damages um, f- caused by obviously the loss of revenue from, because presumably somebody had had to pay for the orchestra to rehearse for all that time um but it led to um you know quite a strange court case actually the hall won in the end and frank Zappa was forced to pay about twenty thousand pounds worth of damages which left him even more angry i think with the albert hall um but there was some really really funny we've got some hilarious sort of newspaper cuttings from the court case where the um, judge has to be has to be explained to him what a group he is he <laughs> listens he listens to some of the music frank sapper music where he apparently he sat there rocking with his head in his hands and then when he was asked if he wanted to hear another one he said no that's enough thanks um and um yeah so i think it, again a very much a, a clash between yeah the old and the new and, um, yeah, and Frank Zappara lost that court case um, and, yeah, was forced to pay damages to the hall. The banning of rock and pop at the hall came at um, a sort of very um, important time for the hall because we were coming up to our um, centenary. 1971 was going to be 100 years since the hall opened. Now, the hall would get... Got actually become quite, um, um, quite tatty and quite um, sort of down at heel sort of during the 50s and 60s. It desperately needed some money spending on it. And the hall, um, towards the end of the 60s, the hall embarked on a massive fundraising campaign to raise money to um, repair the hall because it really, it really did need, it needed cleaning outside and inside. Um, you know, you look at some of the old photos now of the hall. I mean, it was absolutely, it was black, almost black on the outside with pollution. It had graffiti in all the doorways. The, the furniture was tatty. You know, it really was looking a mess. Now, they obviously the Albert Hall wanted to raise money we wanted to you know make the hall look you know look nice again for its centenary and the last thing we wanted was rock and pop bands ripping the place up and that unfortunately was what they did quite often so um and we've got a a brilliant letter about Mott the Hoople fans in 1971 now Mott the Hoople fans were quite famous for being quite um, rowdy wherever they went um, and we actually have a letter sort of querying whether Mott the Hoople should come here because um, obviously in pre-internet days you couldn't really check things quite so easily so uh, Marion Herod is actually querying the promoter saying I've heard that Mot the Hoople are quite wild and cause damage wherever they go and he says no of course they don't, you know, that's, that's nonsense <laughs> and of course Mot the Hoople fans turn up here and what they do is they jump Um, so hard in the boxes on the second tier that they actually bring in the ceiling the plaster of the ceiling of the boxes on the floor below so obviously this was um, you know not what the Albert Hall needed especially leading up to you know centenary so
2: Kick it in the head when he was 25 Speed jive, don't want to stay alive When you're 25 And when he's stealing clothes from mobs and sparks And freddy has got spots for ripping up the stars From his face, funky little boat race Television man is crazy Sam with juvenile delinquent wrecks
1: The started sort of creeping in towards the um, sort of during the 70s really so there were um, I mean if you can believe it even Brian Ferry was banned for a while because um, I think in 72 <laughs> they sent in an, um, one of his albums and uh, because it, again this was the way it was done it was kind of quite curious but what you'd have to do is you'd send in a vinyl album to Marion Herrod who was the Latin's manager she would listen to it on a record player in the office and if she didn't like what she heard then that was it you were you were banned so brian ferry um managed us and in um you know a Copy of his album. She listened to it and said no. She didn't think it was appropriate. Um, he eventually was allowed to return. I think in about seventy-five or seventy-six, where she then became a great convert and decided he was wonderful. And um, and Brian Ferry again has been playing the Albert Hall ever since. Um, but that very famously also happened with Funkadelic, um, which were who, who were bands who were banned in nineteen seventy. So again, their manager sent in an album of their music. And one of the tracks was, I think, it was, um, what's it? Stand up on your ass, will follow, or something like that. And um, and I think that was too much for Mary and Herod. So she, um, yeah, they Funkadelic never got to play either. And then in 1977, rather bizarrely, um, when things were settling down a bit here at the Hall, um, the management of the Damned asked if they could play the Albert Hall. And um, But I think we thought that was just too far because punk rock was definitely just a one step too far in the wrong direction, I think. so. Yeah, so in 1977, I think we said no to them. But then they returned last year for their 40th anniversary and said, actually, it was probably quite a good idea they weren't allowed to play because, I think they were quite wild. So so the hall is
0: is punk-friendly
1: now? We are (laughs) punk-friendly, yeah, officially punk-friendly.
0: Our thanks to Suzanne and the archive team at the Royal Albert Hall for sharing their stories behind one of London's most iconic music venues. Their interactive database of over 30,000 events since the opening of the hall in 1871 is searchable from the Royal Albert Hall website and includes a lot of interesting information, such as over 17,000 event programmes. That's it for this episode of London Calling. Until next time.